The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. At the end of his time here on earth, Jesus gathered together all of his followers onto the side of a hill, and he looked at all of them, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth, it has been given to me, therefore I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything that I have commanded to you, and I will be with you always, even to the very end of the age." Now, over time, those last words of Jesus, they have become known to us as the Great Commission. And we hear those words spoken any time that we get to celebrate a baptism together. And so it's very, very easy for us to just think about, you know, those words only in that context. But see, those words also remind us of why it is that we're here. Why it is that Jesus actually has us still here. Why it is that this church is here. That as followers of Jesus, we are to be disciples who actually go and make more disciples. That part of our Heavenly Father's providential will, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Part of his plan for all of us is that you and I, those of us who are here who are followers of Jesus, that we would actually become more like Jesus as we follow him so that other people can actually discover and see Jesus through us. And so in this series, what we're talking about is a number of different areas of life, um, where that happens and what that looks like throughout a variety of ages and stages of life. And the challenge in all this is that there really is, if we're honest with ourselves, there really is just one thing that has the potential to just stop all of this right dead in its tracks, right? And that is me. And the problem is, I've always found the idea of me to be very compelling, right? You, I mean, you're, you know, kind of interesting. But me, right, see, me, I'm compelling. That's compelling. And see, the truth is, if you're honest, you probably feel the same way too, right? I mean, of course you do. It's always easy to make decisions and choices, right, when the question is, what do I want? What, what do I like? You know, what makes me comfortable? What makes me happy? What are my dreams, right? What are my hopes for the future. All of us, right? The truth is for all of us, um, that's very easy to think about. And there really are some great benefits for me when it comes to following Jesus. I'm going to be a better parent. I'm going to be a better husband, right? I'm going to be a better friend. Um, As we learned last week, I'm going to be more generous, right? But the truth is, if we are following Jesus, all of us who are followers of Jesus, eventually what we come to discover is that if we're really following It cannot really be all about me. And so today, as we continue in our series called Becoming, we are going to talk about perhaps what is one of the most foundational and fundamental aspects of following Jesus. It's one of the core characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this has huge implications for every age and every stage of life, every aspect of life, every relationship in our lives. But what we're going to do is we're going to take this one really big idea, and at the end of the message, we're going to apply it back to a particular segment of life where this characteristic makes the most significant impact and where its presence is most fully 
felt. So if you are here today and you are single and someday you hope to be married, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. If you're here this morning and you happen to be dating somebody and that relationship is a serious relationship and maybe you're even moving towards marriage or you're thinking about getting engaged or perhaps you are engaged and are going to be married soon, I'm so glad that you get to be a part of this message and I hope you listen carefully to what it is we talk about today. And if you're here this morning and you are married, And just like every couple who is married, you are going through the tension that comes from being married and trying to figure out how to stay together and be connected to each other when all of life and everything happening in life feels like it's just pulling you to the opposite directions all the time and you're just trying to figure out how to actually stay connected. At the end of the message today, I am going to give you one very, very specific application that if you apply this into your marriage, into your relationship, it will do more to impact the feel of your marriage relationship than perhaps anything else I can recommend to you or a habit that you could develop. But I've got to warn you about this. Um, we got to kind of talk about this a little bit because if I were just to tell you this one thing right now up front, um, you would just discount it. And you would say, that's not going to change anything. It's not going to matter. It's not going to make any difference whatsoever. So we have to kind of understand and set the table for this whole thing that we're going to talk about at the end of the message. So let's start with this. Mutual submission is the most powerful relational dynamic that exists. The strongest, right, most enduring types of relationship in every area and stage of life, not just in marriage, Right? Not just in marriage, in every area and stage of life, they are all based on this idea of mutual submission. Mutual submission in a relationship means I am here for you and you are here for me. Mutual submission means I want to defer to you and what it is that you actually want and what it is that you need from me and you want to do the very same thing for me. And so in a relationship that's characterized by mutual submission, you have two people who are actually submitting to each other, and this makes a very beautiful and a very powerful, powerful relationship between two people. Now, this whole idea, this is not something that modern psychology somehow came up with or cooked up, right? This is actually a couple of thousand years old. It's found in the New Testament, and Jesus is, in fact, the one who demonstrates and and models this to us. And this understanding of this idea of mutual submission, this is actually what's at the heart of Jesus' command to us as his followers when he says, I want you to go. I want you to go and teach them to obey everything. I want you to follow everything that I have commanded to you, right? This is what is at the core of Jesus' command. Now, it's the Apostle Paul who actually takes this whole idea of mutual submission and he puts it into the the context that most of us are used to thinking about and talking about. And he does this in Ephesians chapter 5. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this part today because we actually talked about this at length in a series back in January, but just kind of a refresher, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he says this to all of us as followers of Jesus. He says, listen, I want you to submit to one another right out of reverence for Christ. This is the big context that the Apostle Paul says, that as followers of Jesus, All of your relationships, right, all of your relationships should actually fall into this understanding. 
And for those of you who are followers of Jesus and you happen to be married to other followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, okay, this is the context for which I want you to understand that your marriage actually exists in. And then he goes on and he gives some very specific information to husbands and to wives, right? But before he gets there to the husband and wife part, he says, you need to understand the whole idea of marriage between two followers of Jesus, it exists in this idea of to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he goes on and he gives us the specifics. Well, it's actually the specifics when we take those out of context. That's the part that gets us into trouble all the time because he gives wives a specific and then he gives husbands a specific. But he starts with the wives first and he says this. Okay, wives, he says, I want you, put this up on the screen, wives, to submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord right? Not wives submit to men in general, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, wives, I want you to submit to your own husbands in the same way that you do to the Lord. Now, husbands love this verse, right? But the problem is, the problem is, who who is this verse written to? Say it with me. Wives, that's right. So this is written to the wives, right? Husbands, you have your own verse. This verse doesn't apply to you. Whenever I have a man who wants to talk to me about this verse, I always say, listen, this has nothing to do with you. This wasn't written to you. You have your own verse, which was written to you a little bit later. This is written to the wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And then the Apostle Paul goes on, and a little bit further in the same chapter, he speaks to the husbands, and he says to the husbands, he says this, husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now again, wives, they love this verse, right? But the problem is, wives, this wasn't written to you, right? You have your own verse. Husbands, this is the verse that's written to us, right? And the challenge is this, right? The challenge is this. This is a really high standard because how high, how far did Christ take his love for the church, right? He died, for the church, right? So men, the standard for us is really, really high. And so the Apostle Paul says to all of us as husbands and wives, right, when we submit to each other in the idea of mutual submission, that this is what a marriage relationship is to look like. That the goal is not to try to somehow, you know, get something from the other person. It's not to try to make the other person go do something for you. That's not it. The goal is for me to take my time, my resources, my talents, whatever it is that I bring into the relationship, and then submit all that to my wife, right? And then for her to do the very same thing for me. And this is what creates this dynamic of mutual submission, and this is the most powerful relationship dynamic that exists. So this is the primary context that we're actually used to thinking about and hearing this idea of mutual submission in. That when two followers of Jesus, when they submit to each other, when they serve each other, when they put the other person first, that creates this dynamic. And again, why do we do this, right? Why do we do this? Because ultimately, ultimately as a follower of Jesus, we recognize that individually I am actually accountable to my heavenly Father. Right? In other words, when Autumn and I actually got married 25 years ago almost, she, what she understood, um, what I understood when we got married, is that she was always going to be more committed to her Heavenly Father than she was to me. And see, I actually wanted that. 
And she was hoping that I would always be more committed to my Heavenly Father than I was to her. And she actually wanted that. Right? And see, this is what makes a marriage between two people who are both followers of Jesus. This is what that is supposed to look like. And of course, there have been bumps along the way for us because we'll both gladly tell you that we are far, far from perfect. Right? But this is the vision. This is kind of the, the thing that we have kept course-correcting our marriage towards over the past 25 years that we have actually been married together. I'm going to defer to you, I'm going to submit to you, and I'm going to serve you. I'm going to use my talent and anything that comes my way for you, right? And you are actually going to do that very same thing for me. And the reason that we do this, right, is because we each recognize what it is that Jesus has actually done for us individually and personally, and that is what we are accountable. That's what we're all accountable to our Heavenly Father for. Now, this is why, right? This is why if you are in a dating relationship right now or you're in a serious relationship right now, you're not married yet, but you're kind of moving that way. This is why if you're in that kind of a relationship and you're like, oh, this is great because he's a Christian, right? She's a Christian. I am telling you that is not enough. Please hear me on this. What you want is to actually be in a relationship with someone who is a follower of Jesus and who understands that they actually live their life under the authority of their Heavenly Father. Because listen, right, he might be a Christian, right, but he's treating you like something you find stuck on the bottom of your shoe. He's treating you terribly right now. He might be a Christian, Right? But he's always demanding things from you. So clearly he is not living as someone under the authority of his heavenly father. Or she might be a Christian. Oh, really? Well, she manipulates you all the time. I hate to tell you that, but she does. And so clearly, right, clearly she is not living as someone under the authority of their heavenly father. Mutual submission, right? Mutual submission is not about leveraging something for yourself. Mutual submission is all about recognizing. It's about serving someone else because this is what Jesus has actually done for me. Now, for this to work, for this whole idea to work, for this to actually happen, not just in marriage, but especially in marriage, right? For this to happen with your kids, for this to happen with your friends, for this to happen with people that you work with, for this to happen with your grandkids, right? This actually requires massive massive amounts of humility, right? The problem is, and we all know this, humility does not come naturally, right? What comes naturally is self-preservation. That's what comes naturally. What comes naturally is what I want, what it is that I like, what it is that, that I feel like doing. Humility never comes naturally, yet here's something that we all know and have all experienced and is a little bit odd if you think about it, when we actually see a humble person, right, we find that person attractive. And when we see an arrogant person, we find that person repulsive. And yet the truth is, there's something inside of me and there's something inside most of us that, if we're honest, that always wants to guard our place, right, defend our rights, always be right, never be wrong, right, and always win the argument but to have incredible relationships, and not just marriage relationships. To have incredible relationships with your kids. To have incredible relationships with your grandkids. 
to have incredible relationships with your friends actually requires us becoming something that is very, very unnatural. Take out your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 3. If you're using one of those Bibles in front of you today, you can find it on page 1,883. We're going to begin reading in verse number 13. Now, in James chapter 3, um, James starts to talk about and describe the importance of humility and submission in the context of every relationship that we have. But then again, at the end of the message, what we're going to do is we're going to take what it is that we've learned, what James has to say to us today, we're going to apply that back in a very particular way into um, one very specific habit, right, that will have a tremendous, tremendous impact on our marriage relationships because it applies everything that James is speaking to us about today. This is what James says, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. He starts and he says this. He says, okay, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it, right, their wisdom, in other words, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So James starts this whole section out by asking what is, in fact, a really big question. He says, okay, what exactly is wisdom? Wisdom is actually making decisions in light of reality. Right? Wisdom is making a decision today based on where it is I want to be tomorrow. Wisdom is making a decision today based on the experiences of the past. Wisdom takes into account all of the context of life. And so James begins by asking this question. He says, okay, who is wise? Right? Who is wise among you? Let them show that in the humility that actually comes from wisdom. And so what James is helping us to understand is something that is a little counterintuitive at first, which is that wisdom actually leads to humility, which in fact leads to greater wisdom. Which means that whenever you meet a person who lacks humility, you're also meeting a person who lacks wisdom. Because the only way to gain wisdom is to actually be open to the fact that maybe, right, maybe I am actually wrong. And yet here's what all of us have experienced, what, what, what I've always thought, what I've always believed, even though I've always had these feelings or opinions, maybe, maybe those things are not true. Only an arrogant person says, I know everything there is to know, and I am never wrong. So humility leads to wisdom, James says, but wisdom, it actually requires humility. He goes on in verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Right? Now, this is kind of a complicated way of, again, expressing something that we've all experienced in our lives before, which is that arrogant people, they actually tip us off, right, to the fact that they're arrogant based on what they say and how it is that we actually hear them speaking. And so the truth is, if you're arrogant, right, you may not know it because you can't see arrogance in the mirror, but what James is telling us is, listen, it's not a secret, right? Because everyone who is around you, right, everyone who is around you, they know it because they see it. It is not a secret. Verse 15 
such wisdom, right? And he puts wisdom in quotes now because he's no longer really talking about wisdom. He's actually talking about arrogance. He says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Do you know what envy is? Envy is actually a manifestation of insecurity. And see, insecurity is the result of trying to hold on to something that you know is not true. And so what James is doing for us is he's taking all of these big ideas and he's beginning to connect them for us and showing us how they they relate to each other. And he's saying, listen, none of this, none of these things actually come from your heavenly Father, right? And all of them, none of them come from above. All of them, they, they all create chaos and disorder and every evil practice. And where you feel that, where I feel that, where we experience that is in our lives. It's in our relationships. He goes on, verse 17, he says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven, right? The wisdom that actually comes from your heavenly Father. The wisdom that comes from being willing to learn something new. The wisdom that actually comes from being open to changing patterns and behaviors and beliefs that perhaps we've lived with and gotten comfortable with and held on to for as long as we can remember. He says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving considerate, right? There's a word that we don't hear very often in our world today, isn't it? What's considerate mean? I defer to you, right? I defer to you. That's what considerate means. Oh, no, 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 we don't have to do it my way. No, we can go there. That's fine. No, if if that's what you want to do, that's great. Considerate is I defer to you. Did you know it's almost impossible to actually have an argument between two people who are willing to be considerate? Did you know it's actually almost impossible to have a bad relationship between a group of people who are each actually willing to be considerate? He goes on, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. See, this is what James is telling us. He's saying, okay, listen, there is a humility that actually comes from heaven. There is a wisdom which is attached to the humility that comes from heaven. But the only way to actually have the humility that comes from heaven, the only way to have the wisdom which is attached to the humility that comes from heaven is to actually live in a way where we understand that there is a God in heaven who knows more than me. And I have not learned everything that I need to learn. And so I have to be open to the idea that maybe... Maybe I am actually wrong. And that openness, that openness needs to be reflected in the way that we actually treat the people that we are connected to, the way that we defer to the people that we are connected to. And in the context that we're talking about today, that's very specifically the man or the woman of your dreams. The person that you hope to have a happily ever after life with. Right, your husband or your wife. And so relationally, this is how this looks. When I realize that I'm wrong, I actually admit it. And when you confront me and you tell me that you think I'm wrong, I seriously consider it. 
And when it dawns on me and I recognize and God has shown me that I'm wrong about the world or about him or about the people in my life, then I ask for forgiveness for it. And see, in doing that, in doing that, I have actually demonstrated humility, which is an absolute requirement. If I'm going to submit to my Father in heaven, and if I'm actually going to experience mutual submission with this person or these people that I am in relationship with. Right? So very practically, this is how this looks for me, right? I say to my heavenly Father, I I do not want my arrogance, I do not want my own arrogance or my own lack of humility to keep me from gaining the wisdom, heavenly Father, that comes only from you. And so, I'm going to demonstrate that same sense of consideration to the person that I am married to that she is demonstrating to her, her heavenly Father and to me. And so that brings me to this one thing. Right, This one thing, that if you begin to do as a couple, it will do more than any other habit you can develop, any other skill that you can learn. It will do more to implement and to put into practice everything that we have talked about together today. But i got to warn you about this. This is really awkward. Okay, This is really awkward. This is very, very uncomfortable. But I'm telling you, there is nothing that you will do more that will be of greater benefit to your marriage relationship. And so here it is. I want you to pray together out loud twice a week. And no, come Lord Jesus, be our guest doesn't count. Right? Dinner prayers do not count. Right? I am talking about that whole very awkward, right? You, you reach across the bed, you grab that person's hand, and, and you say to them, listen, I want us to pray together out loud tonight. And see, listen, if there is something inside of you right now that resists this whole idea, and secretly what you're wishing is that I was asking you to do something a lot more awkward than just pray together, I want you to just think about what that is, really. Right? Because if you're honest, right, for most of us, this is not a belief thing. It's not a theological thing. This is an I'm uncomfortable and I don't like to do things that make me uncomfortable thing, which means this is a pride thing, which is a humility thing, which means in order for us to actually become wise, this is something that I need. Maybe that we need to pay attention to and deal with. And if all of that isn't enough, then think about this. Over the years, there have been literally dozens and dozens of different studies done on what happens between couples when they pray together regularly. Now, in one of those studies, which is done by an organization known as Family Life, what they uncovered is that among couples where both people, right, both people are followers of Jesus, right, in couples like that, only about 8% actually pray together on any kind of a somewhat regular basis. Now, if you couple that truth with another very interesting statistic, which is found in the book Relationship Rescue, which says this, that an interesting statistic reflects the fact that the divorce rate in America is at a minimum of one out of two marriages, but 
right? The reported divorce rate among couples that pray together is about one in 10,000. Now let that sink in for a moment, right? The reported divorce rate among couples that actually pray together regularly is one in 10,000. Now that is absolutely astounding, especially when you think about that truth in light of the author's next statement when he says this. Pretty impressive. Even if you reduce it a thousandfold, even if you reduce that by 1,000%, it's still an impressive statistic. Now listen, be honest. Does this whole idea of praying out loud together twice a week, does this make you uncomfortable? Okay, because for some of you right now, what's happening, if you're here with your spouse or your significant other, this is what's going on. One of you is like, okay, thank you, Jesus. I've been trying to get her to pray, trying to get him to pray. And the other is like, you don't understand. Prayer is personal. Prayer is private. And prayer is nobody else's business. And listen, see, I understand this. I actually understand this a whole lot better than you think I do. But see, in marriage, right, in marriage, this idea of praying together out loud regularly This is what is known as a keystone habit, okay? A keystone habit is one single habit that actually produces multiple positive outcomes, right? Multiple positive results. And so I really want to help you to figure out how to do this in your marriage relationship. So I want to give you three easy things that you can do. And it's going to sound like I'm trying to be silly. I'm not trying to be silly. But I want to give you three simple ways that you can actually start doing this as a couple. The first is simply this. Keep it short. Awkward is actually okay. Now, the reason I say that is because for some of you, the only time you ever hear anybody pray out loud is actually when you're here. And see, you don't need to pray like me. You don't need to pray like anybody you've ever heard pray. You just need to try this. And so you just need to go home, right, and find your husband, find your wife, or maybe, t- you know, tonight in bed, or maybe it's sometime during the afternoon. You need to grab their hand and say, okay, let's just sit down and try this and say, okay, dear Heavenly Father, I'm praying out loud for the very first time, and I don't know what to say. Please help me. Amen. And listen, if it's that awkward, and if it's that unrehearsed, And if it's that short, okay, it's a step. It's a step. The second thing is this. You need to pray with each other, not at each other. Do you you understand what I mean by this? This is like, okay, dear Heavenly Father, I just want to pray that Dave would do a better job parenting our children. And Heavenly Father, I want you to know that I have forgiven him for what it is that he said to me at dinner this evening, right? Not at, with. Third, right, third, if you have kids, if you have grandkids, this is actually the way to start praying together as a couple. And maybe you say, listen, we already pray together as a family. That's great. Don't stop doing that. 
But don't let that be the only time that you actually pray together as a couple. So pray together for your children. Pray together for your grandchildren. Again, this doesn't have to be formal. doesn't have to be down on your knees. doesn't have to be, you know, every night at 9 o'clock. It doesn't have to be any of that. And listen, I just want you to push through the awkwardness right, that you feel towards this. And so some of you are sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, but Joe, listen, you don't understand. We're, we're not even getting along right now. And listen, I actually understand that way better than, than you think I do. You just need to grab her hand. You need to grab his hand and say, Dear Heavenly Father, you know, you know we're not getting along right now. And the truth is, we don't even like each other very much right now. But Heavenly Father, we want to get through this. And we want to get through this together. And you wonder, right? Does God even listen? Does God care about prayers like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Your Heavenly Father, He hears those prayers and He honors those prayers. Absolutely, He does. Now, Part of the reason why this whole idea of praying out loud together, why this is so, why this feels so awkward, right, is because prayer is intimate, okay? So this is a prediction. This is not a promise. But do not be surprised that if as you develop greater spiritual intimacy as a couple together in prayer, do not be surprised if your physical intimacy as a couple also increases at the very same time. Right? All the guys are like, okay, you should have started there. Like, the next time you do this talk, just start there, please. Right? See, listen, listen. This is important, and maybe you don't know this, but one of the New Testament authors, they actually speak in one of the New Testament books. They actually speak about physical intimacy and spiritual intimacy in interchangeable and exchangeable terms. Right? You'd, act, you'd be surprised. You should read this. You'd be amazed at what's actually inside of this, Right? But listen, listen, I just, I just want you, I want you, I want you to pray out loud together twice a week. And here's why this is so, so important to me. This is why I'm poking at you on this, okay? Because Autumn and I didn't do this for a long time. And it was my issue. Because nobody, nobody told me we should. And nobody, nobody told me how to do it. And so I was embarrassed. And I was self-conscious. And I was afraid. And I'm telling you, nothing, nothing has made more of an impact in our marriage relationship than figuring this out. So I want you to pray out loud, together, real prayers, twice a week, even if they're short, even if they're awkward, not at each other, with each other. And if you have kids or grandkids, start there. So would you be willing? Would you be willing to become humble and try to pray together tonight? Now let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we know we know that everything that we have in our lives that is meaningful to us, Father, we know, we know that all of that is a gift from you. And that includes the people we love the most. That includes the people 
who maybe we often fight with the most. And Father, we recognize that for each one of us, compared to how far Jesus has gone to love us and to forgive us and how he has treated us, Father, we know we all fall short. But my prayer for us as your people in this place this morning is that that truth wouldn't become an excuse. That we would not allow that truth to be the reason that we give up or the reason that we give in. And that instead, Father, that what you would do in me personally, what you would do in us personally, is just as you have made us so attuned to when we see arrogance in the life of another person, that maybe, perhaps, Father, we would actually begin to see that in ourselves. That we wouldn't be afraid of those things that make us uncomfortable. That we would be open to receiving wisdom from you. Maybe wisdom that is different than the things that we've thought or things that we've done for our entire lives. And Father, I would pray for each of us that you give us the wisdom that comes only from you. That we would know who your son, Jesus, our Savior is. What he has done. What he wants to do in us so that he can be seen through us. And Jesus, so that your name would be proclaimed and people would come to know you through a relationship with us. All this we pray, Jesus, in your powerful and incredible name.